Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Welcome, everybody, to another Momenta Edge podcast. I'm Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta. And today we have a couple of special guests from Freight Network. Sloan Brakeville, who's the CEO, and John Fox, who's the chairman. And in this conversation, we're going to talk about some of the challenges in the global supply chain, uh, some of the unique solutions and, and vision that they have to apply blockchain and talk a bit about some of the, uh, some of the futures that we, we see ahead when we combine connected assets, AI, and, and blockchain. So Sloan and John, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be on, Ed. Yeah, thanks, John. So for each of you, could you speak about your experience and what's shaped your views of technology? and the global supply chain. John, you want to start? Uh, yeah. You know, I missed Internet 1.0, right? So I was in the logistics industry, and I moved a lot of freight. I like to say I moved over a billion dollars of goods in the last decade, uh, just to kind of give the scale of it. Um, and so I struggled through all the terrible technological solutions uh, that were kind of not being used. Uh, uh, there was very small little apps basically being used for little disconnected parts of the supply chain. So I became really technologically focused uh, with uh, blockchain. It's really where I started diving in and thinking that there was something that we could do here uh, that was collaborative. You know, in the past, I built out uh, sales and marketing software, but pretty limited stuff. And, you know, I saw big cloud computing uh, models being created for our industry, but they still didn't do a lot around uh, uh, data privacy and data sharing, which were really going to be the big uh, uh, blocks to getting this done. So my interest was pretty recent in terms of seeing something that would work and actually wanting to roll up my sleeves and dedicate, you know, a, a nice portion of my life to it. That's great. And, 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 and Sloan? Yeah, my my career has been entirely technology driven. Um, I came from IBM's blockchain labs, but even before I was working in the blockchain group at IBM, I was involved in various CRM software. I implemented Salesforce at a, a major global bank. Um, it was a, a pretty diverse array of technologies that I got to play with. And uh, for me, the, the shape of supply chain is going to be driven by the variety of applications that you can have integrated to help solve the challenges. And so I think that diversity of experience is going to be pretty beneficial. Um, it, it already is proving to be beneficial. So he grew up in tech. I only used tech that made my life easier. Like I tried depositing checks into Chase using our mobile app a handful of times. And like the first time it broke, I just had no interest in trying it. You know, so it's kind of where I came from. Like, how does this make my life easier today? And do I want to pay attention to it? Was sort of the old man approach. That's great. So let's talk about the the global supply chain. I think the you know that there are a number of challenges with the uh, with the global supply chain. Um, but I would love to just get a sense of you know from from you all kind of how you see the really this the state of the ecosystem and and we've got. Uh, all sorts of, of modes of transport trying to uh, manage 
freight from you know one place to another and and also you know across borders um it looks like it's a pretty big industry but you know how it, it's historically in particularly uh you know some of the some of the some of the industries have you know, really distinct differences as well. You know, I mean, that's like, you know, it's a great question, but it's a funny question. It's sort of like asking, like, how do you solve human confusion? Like a lot of humans are confused, but they still get to work on time and have meaningful family relationships. So, you know, we're dealing with a total juggernaut industry that, that uh, uh, moves everything in the world, right? Um, so you have to find broad things that affect everything. Uh, uh, specifically communication between companies. Like communication is so difficult that an IBM study showed that, that one third of a shipment's cost is in paperwork, right? So extrapolate that into the bigger thought that, that large corporations spend about 10% of their gross income on logistics. Uh, so we're dealing with 3% bottom line for, for global commerce potentially is, is kind of wrapped up in paperwork around communicating from so many parties working in one workflow. So we thought if we could just tackle that, right? If we can just get companies exchanging data in a more seamless way with less redundancy, uh, that's something everyone can use. We'll make the world a little less confused. But we, you know, I feel like a lot of blockchain companies start by saying the whole world's confused and nobody can get to work and no one knows how to call their mother. And it's just not true, you know? Uh, and so this, Technology certainly could help someone in that scenario, but I think it's more fair to say, like, uh, uh, these giant industries, while very wasteful and very difficult, actually do work today. And how can we help meet them where they are and start helping them improve little by little with financial incentives for them to join on board? How do the different... Uh, stakeholders in the really in the in the supply chain. Uh, what are what are some of the, the the kind of the key challenges that uh, that face say uh, you know the um, you know trucking providers and and third party logistics providers and like to like to to uh, go down the go down the list and and uh, address some of the challenges. They all they all struggle with interoperability. Um, I think they all can recognize some of the merits and benefits of working together, especially as global supply chains become more and more mm, in demand of certain scalability solutions. Uh, but as, as a single entity, the trucking association, for example, uh, they share loads pretty frequently. Whether you're an independent owner-operator, which makes up about 90% of the trucking market here in the U.S., or you're a giant conglomerate moving freight across the ocean, they all stand to benefit from a shared way of exchanging information about what they're up to. It's all, it's all data, just to put it like a planner face on it. So a truck driver in the U.S. Uh, is making 40 grand a year, and one-third of capacity is always empty in America, sort of a, a shocking number, right? But it's all small businesses. 90% of these truckers either own their own truck or have a company with like five trucks. So when they go to pick up a load somewhere and there's a four-hour wait time and they don't know about it, having that data would have helped them not give away a third of the workday for free. They would have baked that into the price, right? So that's one sort of area that people are going to build marketplaces as applications on top of a protocol to start fixing those things. And we've actually done some of the early work and we've built some white-label things that can get people started in that direction. Um, 
So like a whole other side is proofs of delivery are ubiquitous throughout the industry. And a lot of them are done on paper and then faxed around and no one can find them and you're waiting to get them. And there's a game of telephone that goes on around them. There's a company we're working with called OpenPort that's building an application on the protocol. And they have something called an electronic proof of delivery. Really simple, it's you do it with your phone as opposed to with a handwritten signature. And if they can get people to start using that, all sorts of efficiencies get created. They're actually getting people lower credit rates, uh, they're streamlining track and trace. And, you know, so then the innovation around how are they doing this, I think, is really what happens on the application level that we're seeing that's really interesting. They actually are giving phones away to drivers in developing nations in third world countries and then paying them a tiny micro incentive every time they use that device over a paper bill of lading and actually letting them pay off that phone and eventually own it by doing that. So there'll be all sorts of novel innovation, but it's how do you streamline data and communication uh, fixes pretty much most of the problems that happen on large scale. Well, it's it's really one of the inherent problems I think in in almost any business, just getting the right data to the to the right people at the right time. But uh, the, the certainly the global supply chain has a lot of challenges in in terms of a lack of data standards, and and uh, uh, I know there there are there there certainly are you know some. Uh, industry best practices, but you know, how, how do you get around the challenges of the of the lack of standards? Well, there certainly isn't a lack of standards. There's probably at least a half dozen different organizations trying to provide for standards. It's a matter of how they achieve adoption um, and are they sufficient to hit the goals. Um, I think it's important for us as a protocol provider to adhere to some of the great innovations that have already happened in these standard organizations and find where they've had misgivings. Uh, for example, the GS1 initiative um, that is trying to bring around a, a standard way of sharing information about track and trace between, you know, be it a, a warehouse and a transportation service provider and the consignee, um, incorporating that, the best practices of that into our protocol is sort of the first step. Um, where we think we're going to provide a lot of differentiation, as John mentioned before, is the incentivizations for adoption. And that's something that hasn't been able to happen until blockchain came around. And these scarcity uh, tokens have become something of, of value. Right. You know, I think you do have a point, though. Like, there aren't great standards now. Um, you know, the first big move in logistics was containerization. Um, you know, there used to be containers of all sorts of sizes, and one guy came along and said this is the size and had to do an incredible amount of lobbying to get that adopted, and now that works pretty well, you know. Um, the next big one was called EDI standards, Electronic Data uh, Interface or Interchange Standards, um, and that's people are still adopting that. It's like the hot thing in logistics that they were created in the 1980s. Um, so something that really looks at, you know, uh, all the technological advances uh, in the systems that we have now and how to integrate them. So, like, our way of doing that is that we have some good ideas. Uh, we actually have, like, a separate body that governs our standards called the Fair Trade Consortium. And we will eventually turn over the entire governance of the freight protocol to the Fair Trade Consortium. So step one there is getting a few enterprise-level companies on board and starting the conversations around like, what do you need to, to you know, do track and trace data 
um, between, you know, Maersk and J.B. Hunt? And how do we provide for that in, in such a way that doesn't exclude independent players? And um, So, you know, you got to start from scratch in a sense, but with uh, the people moving the most freight. And I think that's a big theme of what we're doing is, while a lot of blockchain companies are looking to, like, disintermediate a whole sector, we think we need to work with the biggest guys moving the most freight and just help them, like, disintermediate their own waste uh, through this kind of collaboration. So the more people you get on board right up front to join the conversation and have buy-in, I think the easier adoption will be. Right, and from the perspective of the suppliers, right, it, you, the, the suppliers need to be sure that they can be paid for what they ship and, and uh, factoring their receivables can be expensive. I mean, how do you, uh, you know, how, how, do you, how do you view this challenge now for, uh, you know, for getting paid for, you know, for, for suppliers, which is certainly one of the huge challenges in, uh, in the global su- supply chain? You know, great question. Let me jump in on that in a second. You know, let me just first say on the last point that dovetails into this, the incentivizations have changed, right? To adopt EDI standards is expensive, and you've got to build out all these interfaces, right? By us building a fat protocol that actually has, you know, so much ability embedded in the protocol, um, it's simple to adopt standards. And by adopting standards, you'll start saving money because it'll streamline your operations. You can adopt a simple application and start being able to get the benefits, right? So much like that on the factoring side, yeah, factoring's really out of control. Uh, you know, five uh, percent uh, monthly credit terms is not uh, rare at all. They go up to six percent, and you know the reason that is is it's a lot of little independents who are being aggregated by uh, these credit issuers, and you know there's not a lot of trust out there. And it's a lot of flimsy paperwork. And, and, you know, you have the same problem on the, on the traditional goods insurance side. Of how do you really have verified uh, accountability of what's insurable and where it is and what it's worth? So this helps that a lot. Like, I'll go back to Openport, which is a company that I'm really impressed with. And, and they were one of the first companies who made a partnership with us right after Salesforce. Um, and what they're doing is they're taking that electronic proof of delivery and they're actually working with a bank to provide half a percent credit terms on a monthly basis, which is a total game changer. So this is already being done. Uh, Openport is incentivizing these drivers to use the phone to get an electronic proof of delivery, and then they're hooking those drivers up directly to Union Bank, who's giving this uh, you know, 6% a year credit on factoring invoices, and they'll be using freight protocol once we're fully integrated as the single source of truth on that documentation. So again, it's the operators. It's guys like Max Ward building Openport that are like really doing the very hard work of integrating these ideas into real business use cases and spinning them up. But that's the future of this. And the fact that we're seeing someone do this so early is that just sort of confirms the assumption that invoice financing and credit and trade finance in general is the low hanging fruit that's like super eager to, uh, uh, you know, save money, which is really, in the end, what this is going to offer. How specifically does uh, does blockchain technology represent a new approach to uh, to, to solve these challenges of, of, of factoring and, and track and trace? Well, one of the things blockchain provides is this immutable database idea. And as a, for example, the Union Bank example, they look for the lowest risk type opportunities for them to extend their credit. 
And so the benefit of OpenPort and the users of the OpenPort applications uh, is, is the security that comes with blockchain technology as that store of information that is used to determine the creditworthiness of, of the invoices that come over. And so blockchain has provided a unique opportunity in this instance for data security, but it's also useful for a couple other things like the universal single source of truth concept, whereby if we uh, get more and more adoption of the freight protocol, then the location of information about a shipment is going to be stored in this distributed database. And as a result, people can trust that it's not one entity that's in charge of their information or the integrity of their data. It is a distributed node network that maintains the integrity of the uh, of, of that data. I mean, it's just trust. Like, I own a, a, you know, a logistics company now, right? And when we have an insurance claim, they ask us to file the claim and tell them what it was worth. Uh, if my purchase orders, uh, uh, you know, had, had hashes on the blockchain, that would be data they could immediately pull with the permission to access and not wonder if I'm telling the truth or not. It just de-risks fraud. It creates a single source of truth and trust. And which is what a lot of these sort of laborious processes are trying to ensure, and this just takes care of it. What are what are some of the uh, initial hurdles to adoption, or, or or at least concerns? You know, when you, when you're going out and talking to to customers about your you know your approach and about using blockchain in, in a supply chain, what what would you say some of the of the misperceptions are, and you know, how, how do you get past some of the, the hurdles or, or, or obstacles for a new technology? We've, we found that a lot of these organizations that are investing in their IT resources will be hard pressed to find a justification to put more finances into something entirely new unless it's proven. And so the cost savings that come about of integrating with something like the freight protocol are pretty clear. And so moving the, the vision and the strategy of some of these organizations that are slow to adopt new technology into one where they recognize the benefit of blockchain and the benefit of a standardized protocol for the cost savings that it can bring is sort of one of the key challenges there. And so that educational process provides us an opportunity to, to fill a gap in the market. Also, a big misperception is that they're going to have to have all their data out publicly or encrypted on a public blockchain. And, you know, just educating companies about what blockchains are really good for and what data should be on there um, and what data they should really be keeping on their own servers and offering the levels of encryption on those servers that they feel safe with. Um, and also just letting them know that, that, you know, integrating into the blockchain doesn't mean converting their whole economy to cryptocurrency. Uh, people get really kind of freaked out by companies doing ICOs and dealing with crypto and um, you know, and, and we have to explain to them that these are basically, you know, uh, behavior modifiers and incentivizers within systems. Uh, but the whole different, the whole system doesn't need to convert. Like, for example, people don't need to pay their bills in cryptocurrency. But when it comes to having uh, data about those invoices on the blockchain and to have paid a small fee to have those hashed on the blockchain, um, that's going to uh, do dispute resolution pretty much instantly as opposed to the regular 90, 120-day cycle. Could you pro provide some examples of, of how uh, a company might employ uh, a, a blockchain solution that protects some of their you know, proprietary or confidential data, but then you know, takes advantage of, of the immutability and, uh, and, and other characteristics? 
Um, sure. So when we look at the example we've had a couple times already with that electronic proof of delivery, the blockchain itself is going to store the integrity of that data without revealing certain things like the total cost of that shipment. Um, rate information is something that's pretty closely guarded by a lot of these organizations. And if they have provided a competitive rate to basically a friend of theirs, they don't want that information held out in the public domain. And so by having the freight protocol establish a sort of permissions layer and wrapping the core data about a shipment in the security blanket, um, it's, it's sort of how we get adoption from the, the notion of, of individuals who are afraid to associate data with an open protocol and uh, into the world of, of benefits that can come as a result of sharing that. I mean, you go to the biggest companies in the space and start engaging in meaningful conversations as we have about um, how we can help integrate all the data they receive to them more seamlessly and all the administrative costs that that can save. Look at, like, you know, hypothetically, a company like FedEx. How can they do better capacity planning based on what's coming off of Maersk, right? IBM's working with Maersk. FedEx is going to want to integrate into that somehow. Um, how can we take a little part of our protocol that does track and trace and ask all those companies to cooperate with our protocol so that they can all have better capacity planning, shorter offload times, uh, uh, less intermodal freight times, things of that nature. So, you know, it's about meeting them where they are and, and listening to what the enterprise concerns are up at an enterprise level and offering like the lightest solution for the maximum cost saving benefits. Right. Can you talk about what does the freight network protocol do? How, walk us through how, how you, you guys have, have architected it and uh, explain some of, the, uh, some of the concepts around the ecosystems. Um, so I think visually it helps in a podcast format to describe the protocol in layers, like almost like a jawbreaker. Okay. Well, we can, um, we'll, we'll, we can definitely post a link to your, uh, you know, to your, uh, to your materials as well on, on the, on the show notes. Happy to do that. Um, but for the most part, the protocol consists of three main layers. Uh, first is the transport document core. And this core contains information about who's involved in the shipment. Um, what data is going to be associated to the shipment, um, and who can do what to that data. So there's this idea of, of permissions stored directly in this, this central core ball. Now wrapped around that, like the next layer of the job breaker is going to be ID and permissions layer. Now we have infrastructure in place that is essentially validating that any request to that core ball, the job breaker, is authorized to do so. So we'll open up that shell as necessary, given you have the right credentials to do so. Um, you know, for example, if you are the customs authority and the shipment document that's stored in that, that core is uh, acknowledging that somebody who's authorized by the customs authority of the United States to view certain pieces of data, um, that, that layer is going to then open up and reveal the information necessary for that customs uh, agency. Uh, but no more and no less than is required. Um, and then on top of that, how do you get data into and out of the core is through the, uh, this, this infrastructure layer that we're calling our interface layer. Um, and those familiar with application development are probably familiar with things like APIs. 
Um, that's effectively what we've defined is a set of APIs for things like document association. So you want to put a bill of lading scan uh, and associate to that transport document core. Um, we have an interface for that. You want to put time series data like GPS coordinates or temperature or humidity levels. There's an interface for that. You want to talk about payments and how to satisfy payments. There's uh, an interface specifically for that as well. Um, so those three layers are what make up the core of the protocol itself. Um, but in and of itself, it's not directly an application. And so we have a, a fourth layer that sits sort of outside of that core that is specifically for services. And you can think of services um, uh, in terms of uh, like a payment processor. So imagine Stripe or a bank wants to come in and offer settlement services for information stored in that transport document core. Um, they would be interfacing through that payment API, like I described earlier, through a third-party service built specifically for settling and processing payments. But that's just one example. All kinds of services can be built and associated to that. That's an opportunity for third-party developers to make additional income, too, specifically for the logistics uh, services that they would be providing. What, what are some potential use cases or applications that you, you foresee could be built on this, on this protocol? Um, well, we've, we've already seen, and we'll, we'll bring back another reference here to our friends over at OpenPort, um, a, a really cool application of the protocol through a transportation management system. Uh, be it that they associate important data, uh, such as the electronic proof of delivery through those cell phones uh, to the blockchain, uh, the additional information that can be associated through their existing transportation management system is a, a, a big use case for our core protocol. Um, but it's kind of modular. So we've seen that documents being so expensive and, and cumbersome in logistics, um, moving that into sort of electronic document interchange through the protocol is another big use case. I think John may have mentioned earlier the, the cost of a, a global shipment has been uh, approximated to contain just a third of the cost in paperwork alone. So there's a, a big opportunity there. Well, anyway, and, you know, it's really also, look, an application we built anywhere that someone's profiting off of, uh, you know, information asymmetry arbitrage, right? So, like, one of the companies that I uh, uh, built, Lewis Co. Holdings, we're starting to work on a marketplace because we spend a lot of money on freight, and we find that, like, we want to get around the brokerage layer on some of it. Um, and, you know, we interop we inter uh, uh, operate with these independent carriers all over the country, but we, we really can only reach them through third parties that charge us a lot to, to find them. And we don't have anything against brokers. We think that this technology will help brokers a lot, but there we're just building a simple inter interface. Um, Freight went ahead and built some white label applications of like a, an iPhone app that lets carriers see availability in a marketplace and, and right to the blockchain. And, and a, uh, an application that like plugs into Salesforce and lets us uh, uh, take uh, shipment requirements from that database and put it onto the blockchain as a smart contract. So not to get too complex there, but it's basically a little marketplace for a small business that wants to start uh, um, you know, putting their data on the blockchain and interact that way. We're endeavoring to build that. Um, maybe that's something that'll become more robust and we can onboard other people to. But uh, anyone that wants to build an application uh, can pretty, you know, th that disintermediates some area of waste within their company should be able to uh, use the protocol in that regard. So, like, we have the first good ideas, we think, but there's going to be ideas that we haven't thought of that we're going to have to uh, expand the protocol to accommodate, I'm sure. 
So for intermediaries and freight brokers, what what do you think success would look like to have brokers who have uh, conducted their business the same way for uh, often decades to to move quickly and adopt new newer approaches to you know to automation and, and blockchain you know how do you, how do you get past some of the uh at least the 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 challenges that uh non-tech companies face and and john you alluded this to your you alluded this yourself right your your background was in traditional uh you know supply chain and logistics and you got pushed into technology because of the, uh, the challenges of your, uh, of your business. Uh, how, uh, do you, are there ways to, uh, accelerate how, uh, other people in the ecosystem adopt these technologies? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, let's not even go so far as like self-driving trucks. Let's just start with where we are today. Um, in, in the U.S., 90% of trucks are owned by companies with six trucks or less. A lot of that's owner-operators with one truck. So, you know, a broker is going to be able to access those guys. You know, brokers sit on the phone all day and, and find people to operate with, right, and find little manufacturers to operate with. Most manufacturers have a few employees. Uh, there's under, like, 4,000 that have you know, over 500 employees, right? So, um, so take a broker they're going to be able to provide better track and trace to their customers because instead of doing it the way they do it now, they're going to be able to just click on a link that, that shows them the, uh, the last movement on the blockchain, right? Today, the way it works is I'm a shipper, right? I'm trying to move a pallet of fruit from New York to California. I call up my broker and say, where's that fruit? They call up the LTL company and log or log into their uh, uh, system and see where that pallet's supposed to be. They then call the dock manager, see if it's actually there, uh, and then you know they call me back and say what they know. And so, getting rid of that process, I think, gives them so much more time in their day to do what they do and do what they do well, which is to find businesses that need stuff to ship, find truckers that want to ship it, and put them together and take their markup for it. So, you know, the efficiencies don't come from knocking out. Whole, you know, whole parts of the industry. Like, hey, let's disintermediate brokers. It was actually an early assumption of ours that was really wrong. And we see it a lot in the market, and it's just, it's wrong. Uh, the way that we disintermediate is let's disintermediate all the empty capacity. So let's take the 30 billion empty miles driven every year, and the fact that there's a shortage of trucks, even though there's all this empty capacity, and let's fix that by enabling the people who are already fixing it all to do their jobs more effectively. Do you see this uh, ex- extra capacity as more of a long-haul tr- trucking uh, challenge or a last-mile challenge? I, um, uh, I heard uh, Shankri uh, from Freight Network a couple of weeks ago at a Tech 2025 event talking about the, 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 just the enormous cost that last-mile uh, involves in the, in the in the end-to-end supply chain, is there is there a way that this this technology can can be applied to help reduce some of the inefficiencies there? Yeah, absolutely. It's both. Um, you know, it's it doesn't really matter what mode of transportation it is. The, the final mile represents a, a particular logistics challenge because of the diverse array of infrastructure that's in place uh, for most final mile deliveries. But effectively, the same challenges remain. It's where is it? 
uh, what condition is it in, and when can I expect it to arrive, um, in addition to how much it's going to cost me. So having that information available through this protocol layer is, is still just as valuable for final mile as it is for, for long haul, for, uh, for rail, for air, for marine. So um, absolutely, yes. How do you see the the broader market evolving over the next decade? If 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 your optimistic uh, expectations are are fulfilled, uh, you, how, how do you see the landscape changing over time? Well, I mean, I think this whole technology and the reason people think it's going to be so pervasive is it decentralizes control, right? And so I think that you're going to see consortiums creating a lot of the important ideas about how we all cooperate, right? Just logistics, which is, you know, not as large as supply chains, like $13 trillion so annually. Um, so I think you'll see good ideas winning more because, you know, the blockchain technology allows the kind of communication that actually lets a good idea win, right? And I've, uh, I've, I've seen a couple of interesting ideas come out of shipment solution providers at a product level, whereby you as a consumer of logistics services uh, currently don't have a lot of, of options in making decisions about how you ship your goods. Um, it's, it's changing, and you can see that in areas like Amazon. At the consumer level, you go in and you pick the type of delivery service that you want. Do you want same day? Do you want next day? Do you want five days? Or do you not care? And so having that Chinese menu type option is, is really hard to achieve in the global supply chain. Um, but we can probably expect to see as, as coordination improves over time, these new types of products being offered for the consumer of, of logistics services. Also, think of a protocol as like an aggregator, right? Um, no matter what software that you happen to want to implement, like companies today will spend millions of dollars implementing a proprietary software solution into their company, and that's fine but it precludes them from working in any meaningful way with anyone who isn't on that software, right? They could do like a one-to-one plug-in with the guy who's handing them something or that they're handing off to, but how do they participate in like a large ocean of data basically that anyone can pull from? So like a technology like this says we're platform agnostic, we're even blockchain agnostic. Uh, we're going to save people using it a lot more money than kind of the pittance that it costs to write data, and anybody can use it. Uh, you know, it'd be on any system you want. So I don't see something else like that out there that says, great, you love Hyperledger? Wonderful. Uh, uh, you know, that's great. Stay exactly with that. Just interoperate with us on a very basic level. Um, and that goes from small systems to large systems. That's why the Salesforce plugin was like a big deal to us, right? It's a pretty light thing that we did there as we became an integration partner, which just means that if your company is using Salesforce, we can create a button in there that says ship with freight protocol and it ties you into all of our stuff. But the customer base using that, just from an interoperability standpoint, Salesforce isn't promoting us uh, or telling all their customers to use us, but creating that possibility when we show value on our side is so easy for them to access them. It's literally a button click away and we're like a super cheap add-on to what they're already doing. No, that's that's the idea of making it completely transparent, which is really what 
what you know, what we what we what we need are going to need to see for applications and 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 protocols you know built on blockchain to to have that that wider wider adoption. Yeah. This is as if like you know IBM was saying on on Hyperledger or their logistics solutions, we're going to build it for anyone in the world that wants it. And we're going to make it really cheap to onboard to. And then we're going to give it away completely to the people that use it and that own tokens that power. And because we're going to eventually have our consortium take over full governorship of the protocol, and we don't own it. It's, that's up to the people that are on the consortium to make those decisions. Certainly we'll spend the first few years on-ramping people to that, sort of you know, setting up the right processes. But, uh, you know, that just... That just isn't being done in the pre-blockchain world, where there's this new belief of radical thinkers who are becoming pretty mainstream, who say, look, the people who actually work in an industry can do a better job creating value in that industry than centralized parties can. And so even if the people working in that industry are a giant brokerage house who is an intermediary, great. They are adding value to the overall network without having them be an inter- have them having to have an intermediary between them and their marketplace. Now that's uh, that's pretty pretty powerful implications. So well, it's, it's, it's a humble approach, is how we think of it. Of just we're just laying the pipes for people to work together. How they do it is going to be very profit focused, as it should be. Yeah, and it it really uh, you know harkens back to the really the different uh, philosophy and mindset of an of an open source approach too, right? Where you're where you're free and open, and uh, the the network and the community and the ecosystem end up being uh, really critical to drive value rather than trying to extract uh, you know software licenses from from enterprise customers. Right. And so like when we're out building this, getting credibility just to get it off, you know, bootstrap it. And we're talking to, you know, the, the fortune 500 shippers of the world, what's really happening on the other side of it is all the little independents, you know, throughout India, for example, are getting better access to shipments and capacity and actually improving their businesses from, uh, uh, you know, barely getting by in life to being able to do a lot more. Well, that was going to be my next question about how how this could impact some emerging markets, which have always been have which have struggled with uh, with visibility and 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 cross border payments and and uh, a number a number of challenges. Well, you know what you're building here is a system of barter, right? And I fell in love with the uh, uh, with really uh, uh, the whole idea of doing. Uh, a marketplace and a protocol and using cryptocurrency when I read the Bancor white paper. Right? And it started with this great quote by Jevons about how the double coincidence of barter is so rare to happen. Right? And, and barter works really well, like in a little village in the Philippines, they actually have a lot of it with phone credits. You know, uh, uh, I've got chickens, you've got, you know, butter, let's, let's figure out what they're worth. And it also works well on a very large global scale. Where it doesn't work well is on like, let's take a region of truckers and get everyone to agree to run freight in a certain way in a region because supply and demand won't add up. So this was an attempt to have fair barter on a very large scale, right? And decentralization is really the tool that's going to make that possible. What I've seen as well is, uh, is, is in these emerging markets, the access to, to technology can be pretty challenging. Um, but I would argue in a lot of these emerging markets, the cellular technology is certainly there. So in one application of, say, trucking logistics over land, 
you can see adoption of this technology fueling a new way of moving uh, these goods from point A to point B because they already have the existing cell infrastructure. They're just missing the incentives to adopt things like smartphones to get their job done. That's where partners like Openport have have proven to be pretty valuable. We see a uh, you know their their incentive model of providing free tools, free technology, and having the use of that technology be a means of of those operators paying back uh, that you can think of it as a technology loan. So that that's kind of the nice future state. But you know, I guess what we're not seeing here today is a bunch of sort of interesting announcements that people will see coming out over the next quarter and two. We have um, about 10 really interesting partnerships happening now. Uh, some of them will be listed publicly. Some will be able to list publicly a little further down the line. But we're like a sensor company who is running freight for big brands that we know very well, kind of tracking food temperature. Um, they're using our blockchain, and they're going to be tracking – you know, some of the biggest food retailers' food on our blockchain, right? So you got to start with the big boys, but then Sloan said the access to technology for the smaller guys is just, you know, already there because of all of that. So if people keep an eye on our project, I think they'll start seeing the brands that we're talking about and how that kind of integrates. And we're, we're trying really hard to be an example and thought leaders in the space of adoption and actually bootstrapping something real using enterprise companies as partners. I think there's going to be other much stronger thought leaders on the tech side and around privacy and, and uh, identity we're working on too, but there's a lot of big boys there. But actually getting something working, an enterprise scale that people can use, or when I say people, the enterprise Fortune 500 companies can actually interoperate with and get value from, I, I think we're going to be one of the leaders in that space is, is really uh, a big hope of ours that we keep focusing on. Well, we'll be we'll be watching closely, and and uh, certainly wish you uh, nothing but success. Um, I have one question that I always like to ask of our podcast guests, which is uh, whether you have a, a a book or resource recommendation for our for our listeners. And it doesn't have to be a tech book, but uh, I always I always love to toss that out. One of, one of the first books that I read when I got started on this project was uh, called The Box. It's on Bill Gates' uh, favorite book list, I believe. And what it does is it gives you a seminal history of how containerized shipping that started in the, in the late 50s and became the de facto way of moving goods globally came about. And it tells a really good story, but it also harkens to the challenges of achieving uh, that core sort of standards adoption on a global scale. So I'm expecting to see a lot of parallels between what happened getting containerization uh, to become ubiquitous with what we're going to face having a, a global shipping protocol become ubiquitous. Wow, that's a great, that's a great recommendation. I'm going to have to uh, have to get that. Um, I'm a big fan of Portrait of an Artist as a young man. Uh, oh. People like James Joyce. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, when I got in this space, I read two books, just very general. Uh, and one was Blockchain Revolution, and the other was called Ethereum and Solidity. Because uh, in terms of true core development, there's been two really interesting thoughts in this space, right? And that's Bitcoin and Ethereum. First being the idea of, of uh, you know, having means to, uh, to do value transfers person to person uh, that, were, that were, you know, trusted and verified. And the second was turning the whole world into a computer. 
Mm. Uh, so the simple book Ethereum and Solidity is what really got my mind on fire about this space uh, when I first read it a couple of years ago. It's it's pretty exciting to be uh, to be around at the at the cusp of one of these major technology revolutions. I think, uh, yeah. For those those of us who were, I, I I didn't completely miss the internet revolution, but I was certainly a little later than I would have liked to be. And it was uh, this is this this has uh, all the hallmarks of of something that's really uh, you know fundamentally transformative. So um, we're very excited about it as well. Yeah, well, we believe so, and uh, echo, echo your sentiment, and stay up a lot of late nights trying to keep up with all the stuff we see going on in the market, because yeah. uh, uh, I've never seen so much intelligence gathered before. It's, it's really humbling. It is. It's it's pretty amazing. So, well, with that, um, we'd like to wrap up our podcast. Uh, we've been speaking with Sloan Brakeville. Uh, CEO of Freight Network and John Fox, Chairman of Freight Network, and this has been a, a fascinating conversation and, and really illuminating. I, I want to thank you both for taking the time. Hey, thanks, Ed. We're big fans of the show. Thank you for including us. Yeah, we appreciate it, Ed. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner, with Momenta Partners.